to the UK, where it's been another eventful fortnight, the likely future PM was uh, glitter-bombed on stage and a major rail project has been officially abandoned. Enter Ian Dunt, columnist with the Eye newspaper, joined us from London. Ian, the Liverpool and Manchester Railway was uh, a, sort of a masterpiece when it would opened almost 200 years ago. What happened to your great rail-travelling nation? Complete degeneration and collapse in all of our functional abilities or our industrial potential. So, yeah, I mean, we did, you know, invent the railway and we're also first off the bat with having underground railways. It's kind of a proud heritage of this country. And it now turns out, and in fact, this is something the Prime Minister tried to present as something to be proud of, that we're incapable of carrying out even quite rudimentary rail projects. You know, it's funny, you can go, if you, if you take the Eurostar, uh, from London into Paris, the first thing that you experience as a Brit is just this massive sense of national humiliation. I mean, you get on a train in Paris, I did it this summer, you know, to go out to Bordeaux or somewhere else, like the train goes at astonishing speeds. It's clean, it smells good. You've got these lovely cafes, you can stand up there, you can socialise, you can mingle. They all, obviously, because it's French, have very nice wine. The trains in Britain are a mess, like they are late, they are pulverizingly, I mean, just eye-wateringly expensive. They never really run on time. Many of them smell consistently of urine just because of this sort of design defect that the smell of from the toilet seeps all the way down the carriage. And they are massively overcrowded. Most of the time you can't sit down. They're just a deeply humiliating experience from which it's hard to remove yourself with any dignity. High Speed 2 was supposed to deal with this problem. The idea was you have a massive line all the way up the country linking the cities for high-speed trains. It gets them off the rails of the smaller commuter trains between towns, frees up the space, builds capacity, creates something that looks like a 21st century transport system. And now the Prime Minister has decided that that's what he's going to cancel. We're still going to have the bit that goes from London to Birmingham, the stump of the project, but anything going up into the north will be cancelled. And it's basically just this admission that Britain is just not a serious country. It's not a country that can pursue rudimentary transport infrastructure projects. It's a really, really demeaning moment. We'll discuss the uh, Labour conference in a moment, but Labour has had a win in, well, the wind in its sails after a win in Scotland. Yeah, rather Glen and Hamilton West. It's a, it's a by-election in Scotland. Now, you may remember, I mean, for, for recent years, decades actually, Scotland's been in control of the, the SNP, the Nationalist Independence Party. And that's a really, that, that makes elections in Britain very right-leaning. Because what you require on the first-past-the-post system is really for the left to go into just one place, for, for progressive voters to go to one party. The SNP took what had previously been this massive block of seats in Scotland, almost all of them progressive votes, seats that would naturally have gone to Labour, surgically removed it from Labour and handed it over to an independence party, which even if they both got you know enough seats for a majority after an election, they couldn't work together because one of those parties, Labour, you know, believed in Britain as it stood and the other wanted Scottish independence. This is the first sign we've seen that that may be starting to change, that the SNP's kind of mystique with the population in Scotland may be starting to fade. So we saw an SNP MP stand down. She'd got on a train when she had COVID and, you know, was subject to disciplinary proceedings and eventually lost her seat. 
Labour finally took that seat. And it starts to suggest that they can build momentum in Scotland. And absolutely, if they can secure, you know, even a couple of dozen seats in Scotland, suddenly the mathematics for a general election win across the whole of the country, across the whole of the UK, become that much easier. Now, to the Labour conference, uh, leader... Keir Starmer was glitter bombed by a protester while uh, mm. speaking. Uh, aside from that interruption, did was Starmer a charmer? You know, he did pretty well. He's never going to be um, Tom Cruise, and he's and he's never going to be Tony Blair, you know, or Boris Johnson, like some, someone with sort of proper political charisma. Uh, but he's a serious man who I think gives a sense of his decency quite boring but people are kind of in the mood for boring we've had the opposite of boring for about seven years now and it really hasn't been working out very well so there's a sort of sense of like maybe we could just get someone in who actually knows what they're doing and can make you know transport systems and health services and education systems actually run instead of pontificating about nothing while uh, presiding over the organizational collapse of the british state so he did pretty well there he also dealt very well by the way with the glitter bomb i mean this guy just comes on the first seconds of the speech dumps this glitter over him and you can see this momentary look of kind of panic in Starmer's eyes and what's happening here is this like a you know an assassination attempt or something the photos of that moment I mean they're they're inadvertently very flattering to Starmer they make him look like this sort of character in a Doctor Who episode I mean he looks rather wonderful surrounded with all the glitter and he just sort of took the jacket off you know rolled up his sleeves and got on with it and I think generally came out of it better than he had done if the glitter bomb hadn't taken place Now, Ian, uh, meanwhile, the war between Israel and Gaza is leading to a small war between the BBC and the government. Yeah, it's it's, it's almost like this unwritten rule of British politics that no matter what debate you are having, eventually it will centre on the BBC. For some inexplicable reason, we're incapable of talking about a subject without somehow making it about the BBC. And that is exactly what has happened here. So the BBC has a rule where it uses the word militant instead of terrorist for all sorts of groups. And the reason it does this is, you know, the kind of thing that you would sort of talk about when you when you were 16 years old. You know, one man's terrorist is another man's freedom fighter and blah, blah, blah. So what the BBC does is it just tries to stay away from that whole debate and just go, look, we call everyone militants. It means we don't have to make a call. You know, the BBC operates in dozens of countries worldwide, places like China, Uh, places like Iran, and there it comes under considerable pressure from governments to say, well, we want you to call these democracy guys terrorists. And they're like, well, we're not going to do that. And we don't do that, you know, in the Middle East or in the UK either. Now that's becoming increasingly untenable. I mean, the government, the, the, the rhetoric from the government has just been so shoddy and cynical. It's obviously a terrible period out there. And all you can feel is horror when you look at it. But I have to say, I'm starting to develop a very particular kind of acute disdain for anyone who tries to use the events in the Middle East for their personal domestic political gain. And that is exactly what ministers here have been doing. Grant Shapps, an absolute human mediocrity who for inexplicable reasons has been at the height of government for nearly 13 years now was demanding of the BBC and essentially saying to the BBC it was responsible for anti-Semitic attacks in the UK because it insisted on using the word Hamas militants rather than Hamas terrorists. I mean, just a, a very jaded, cynical attack and sort of indicative of the level of debate in this country, that instead of actually grappling with these huge issues taking place in the Middle East, it all becomes terribly small and parochial on the domestic front. 
Ian, the war is a long way from the UK, but it's uh, very close to home for Scotland's first minister. Yeah, Hamza Yusuf, who's the leader of the SNP, and he is Scotland's first minister. His family, his in-laws, are in Gaza. They just happened to be on a trip there when this all kicked off. He has conducted himself with an extraordinary degree of dignity and composure and restraint over the last week, actually, and not at an easy time. I mean, he's under huge domestic pressure to sort of lay out a kind of timetable for how the SNP might secure another independence referendum. He's had the SNP's annual conference that is taking place this week. He's really under pressure, and yet at the same time, he's clearly dealing with this incredibly emotional situation in his family life. He's been giving interviews where he it still exhibits this, this real sense of sort of disinterested composure. He's also, by the way, been going to visit um, sort of Jewish families, you know, in Scotland who have experienced loss and experienced anxiety around their friends and their family in Israel from Hamas's attacks. Uh, he, for days on end, in fact, I think it was, in the end it was for an entire week, was unable to secure a meeting with the British Foreign Secretary. He had asked this, not just as a citizen, but also as the First Secretary of Scotland, to say, I need to know what you are doing to help British citizens who are in Gaza. And the British Foreign Secretary just completely ignored him until eventually the media pressure became too much. But yeah, I have to say, in all of this, he really has dealt with it tremendously well and has received a huge amount of admiration and acclaim on that basis. Going back to uh, Starmer, the charmer, How long before he moves into number 10? That's an interesting question. Because of our rules, it could be any time. I mean, it's it's under Sunak's power to call the election as long as it doesn't go past the date of January the 28th, 2025. So we have basically at least another year. It's not going to be in the winter because it's impossible to get your volunteers out campaigning for you if you do it in the sort of cold, wet, dark months. And I don't think he's going to do it next spring either because, you know, Prime Ministers like being Prime Minister. They, they they kind of want to stay in power. And if they're looking at an election that they're likely to lose, they tend to push it out as far as they can. So my best bet is that the election will probably be in September or October of next year, basically in a year's time. And at that point, Labour is very, very likely indeed to get into Downing Street. I know it's a long, long way outside our usual terms of reference, Ian, but uh, there's been an interesting result in the Polish election. There's been an astonishing result in Poland. I mean, absolutely astonishing. Uh, Law and Justice Party have been in power there for, uh, I think, for seven years now. Um, An absolutely abysmal, authoritarian, homophobic, populist party, very much in the mould of Orban in Hungary under Fidesz, or, of course, Trump, you know, in the US or the Brexiters in the UK, dismantling judicial independence, press independence, targeting minorities, exactly the sort of thing you would expect. A coalition of liberal, centrist, left-wing, centre-right parties have as we've just had this confirmed over the last couple of hours, now won the election there and able to replace them. And it's this real moment to show Europeans the slide towards populism and authoritarianism is not inevitable to any degree and moderates and liberals can climb back the tide. On that happy note, I'll let you go, Ian. I know you've got a a train to catch. Ian (laughs) Dunn, columnist for the Eye newspaper, and Ian will be back to update us on the UK's sorry state of affairs in a fortnight. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. 
Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.